Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join in, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation with Dr. Demetrius Braddock. Dr. Braddock is Associate Professor of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. And here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Demetrius, tell me a little bit more about who you are, your background, and what you do in terms of your research. Oh, sure. So, um, I'm basically a a biochemist and a physician. I trained in biochemistry uh, at University of Chicago, where I went to medical school. And then I followed that with training at the National Institute of Health, where I trained in chemical physics, the structure of molecules and their shapes. And, um, and in anatomic pathology. And so currently at Yale, what I do is I diagnose cancer, blood cancers, as a hematopathologist. And my research um, involved a family of enzymes that were kind of understudied and not, not really understood. And they catalyze a, a very interesting biochemical reaction, which is why I was initially interested in them. The reaction they catalyze is the most unfavorable biologic reaction known to man. So um, this reaction, without the, cat- the enzyme present, takes uh, one every one trillion years. So that reaction will happen once a trillion years, unless the enzyme's present. So depending on your uh, view of the age of the universe, um, it's never happened before without mm-hmm. the enzyme. So we were very interested to understand you know, what these enzymes did in the body physiologically, what their importance was, because they catalyzed such an unusual reaction. And that's kind of led me into the current um, direction of our research. So I guess the first question is, how do you come across an enzyme that catalyzes a reaction that may never have occurred? (laughs) And how do you get interested in this particular enzyme um, if the reaction hasn't occurred yet? And how do we know that that's important? Yeah, so... um I should, I should state that the reaction occurs all the time in the body because the enzyme is there. So okay. the enzyme takes a reaction that would absolutely never occur without it being present, and it, it happens several times a second. So it, it makes it very favorable. And it does that by re, you know reducing the free energy of the thermodynamics of the reaction mechanism, which is something we study as biochemists. And um, organic chemists have been really interested in these reactions for years, probably 50 years. Um, and it's been a, the fa- a sort of a fascination of, of, of um, research in the chemistry field. But I think it's really been lost in the biologic field, the importance of these uh, enzymes. And so, um, you know, that, 
that kind of motivated my interest in them because they're basically you can think about it that they're creating a very rare signal that never happens and so when that signal happens it's telling the body something really important pay attention this is an important event and so the body responds to that in big ways and in the case of one of the enzymes um, it causes blood vessels to form and tumors to metastasize mm. in the case of another enzyme it causes bones to form and, and calcium to build up or or to disappear in your body so big important reactions yeah so these are like key physiologic regulators of uh, homeostasis in the body and so this is kind of my my theory you know um, is that the these enzymes are 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 key signaling events for that govern whole organismal physiology and and that's why I started looking at them and so so you started looking at them but what does any of that have to do with cancer well, one of the enzymes, the, the first enzyme really to be fully worked up, um, which is the second uh, enzyme in the family, and it, so it's named NPP2 for the number two, um, this enzyme was originally discovered in melanoma cells uh, because melanoma cells secrete it, and it causes melanoma to move and metastasize and, and, um, and evolve in the body. And so uh, when I was at the National Institute of Health, my chairman at the time, Lance Leota, discovered this enzyme and he introduced me to this family through this enzyme. Um, and then we at Yale, when I got here, we looked at this enzyme, we looked at inhibitors to it, and we showed that small molecule inhibitors can, can prevent tumor metastasis if you inhibit the enzyme's activity and so forth. And um, that work has now evolved into um, drug companies basically developing very sophisticated inhibitors beyond what we were capable of developing. And those inhibitors are currently working their way through the clinical trial process. Well, that's very cool. So, so is it just this one enzyme, or are there other enzymes in this family that do equally cool things and that have been equally well worked up? So. The, that is, NPP2 was the most um, described and studied because of its role in cancer. Um, and when that field was moving very rapidly and, uh, you know, uh, kind of, I was unable really to chemically keep up with it because I'm not a chemist, I'm a biochemist. I began to look at other family members and I looked at the less well-studied family members and that led us into our current research which is looking at the first family member, NPP1. And this enzyme catalyzes a different reaction, completely different, and it generates um, a, an inorganic chemical in the body called pyrophosphate. And we um, we knew that pyrophosphate was important for bone formation, but we really didn't understand how important it was. And uh, that got us into sort of an investigation of what the role of this enzyme may be in the body. And we began to study uh, diseases associated with the enzyme, and we came across a very rare disease in which people, individuals, are born with a mutation in the enzyme, and these babies uh, tragically develop um, calcifications in their vascular system, and they, they will die at about six months of age uh, mm -hmm. because of um, low levels of pyrophosphate. So that, that became a very interesting um, point of research for us. And so then what happened? Well, so then we began to really think about how we could 
take our understanding and knowledge of the enzyme and, and manipulate you know, this lethal disease. And we came uh, up with a strategy to deliver the enzyme as a drug, which involves modifying the enzyme so that you can inject it into the body. And um, we uh, did an experiment where we took uh, mice that have this mutation, the same exact mutation that the humans have, and these mice also get vascular calcifications and they die in, within 30 days of life. And we treated the mice with the, uh, what, what we call a biologic, which is an enzyme replacement therapy. And we found that uh, all the mice that we treated dramatically re uh, recovered from the disease. It, the enzyme therapy prevented the disease, the vascular calcifications, and they appeared completely normal. Hmm. Whereas the um, the mice that weren't treated all died within 50 days. So it was a, kind of a black and white dramatic biologic experiment and something you don't often encounter in science. And so... And so has this now been translated to humans? I mean, have we tried this in children? So no, we, we just um, finished what, that experiment, which we call the proof of concept experiment, uh, last year, a year ago. Um, and um, about this time last year is when we completed that. And so now you go through an FDA approval process where you take um, this data and toxicology data and additional data that you acquire and you file a, a package with the Food and Drug Administration to uh, get what's called an initial new drug application. So this is the current state of this uh, therapy. We, we feel that uh, this is a metabolic disease, and metabolic diseases are, are predicted very well in animal models, unlike some cancers where, you know, the cancer can can be cured in the mice and not in, in humans in, in some cases. In, in the case of metabolic disease, the um, animal models are actually very accurate for, for, the, for the patients. So um, given that it's a lethal disease, there is no therapy, there's no good cure. It's a horrible, tragic uh, disease. We are hopeful that, that we can move this into a clinical uh, trial uh, within um, two to three years. Excellent. So. So how common is this in children? So it's actually very rare, and it's it's what we would call an ultra-rare disease. Um, so the incidence is 1 in 350,000 is what the estimate is. So one person in 350,000 may, you know, may come up with this disease. Now, there are kindreds, you know, of, of patients where you know, every fourth child they have will have this disease. So if you if you happen to be an affected individual and you're married to another affected homo heterozygote, we call it, um, you know, you may have several babies with with this. So it, it it's it's tragic for those families, and they may have a series of children that are partially or fully affected with this problem. Um, but what we're understanding about this disease is that. Um, these these babies also get renal failure, and um, they they present you know either born with or quickly develop renal failure as well as vascular calcification, and those processes are are related. They're interrelated, and it has to do with phosphate balance and the ability of the kidney to excrete phosphate and so forth. And um, so even though this rare disease is a is 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 very rare in a very select group of patients. There's a huge group of patients with renal failure. One in 10 adults has renal failure. And patients in renal failure also develop vascular calcifications identical histologically to the calcifications in this very rare disease. Um, 
they have a histologic signature where it's it's a medial wall so the calcification occurs in the muscle layer of the artery and that's very unusual uh, in vascular calcification so um, we think that the pathophysiology or the root cause of the disease in this rare instance in babies with this mutation is also the same cause in patients suffering from renal disease and can also be treated with this biologic. So we are pursuing this uh, very common cause. Perhaps two million patients a year could benefit from some form of therapy to reduce their vascular calcifications in kidney failure. So in the renal failure patients, do they also have a deficiency in this enzyme? Um, that is not known, but we know that the renal failure patients have a, a low level of pyrophosphate, and pyrophosphate is what the enzyme makes, and it's the only enzyme in the body that makes that chemical. Mm -hmm. So the renal, we know that the renal failure patients have low pyrophosphate, we know that it correlates directly with vascular calcifications, and we know that when we give the enzyme, we can raise the pyrophosphate in, in mice anyway, and we believe we can raise it in humans as well. So we're... Um, you know, about as sure as we can be without actually doing that experiment, that um, we can intervene in the process of progressive vascular calcification in a large cohort of patients that have renal failure. And so that's, that's a current um, long-term goal of the research as well. Yeah, because, you know, as, as we talk about this, uh, two things come to mind. The first is that you know, it seems that for the metabolic disorder uh, in babies, um, it seems like you've come across the answer uh, in mice, um, which if you developed this drug, this enzyme, um, could benefit, albeit a very small population of patients, one in 350,000. And so you start thinking about the cost of, cost of the research, the cost of drug delivery, and how much that whole process takes um, in order to help such a very, very small fraction of the population, and whether that would then translate into a extremely expensive medication and whether there's value in that. If there is no benefit in the renal failure patients, or whether if we find that this is actually beneficial for renal failure patients who are uh, fairly ubiquitous, um, that this may actually be of greater value. We have to take a quick break for a medical minute, but I'll let you respond to that when we come back. So please stay tuned to learn more information about basic research with my guest, Dr. Demetrius Braddock. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Demetrius Braddock. We're talking about his latest research and clinical applications. He was telling us, for those of you who were with us right before the break, about his fascination with an enzyme uh, or a series of enzymes, and one in particular that catalyzes a reaction that, if not present, results in infants dying. But it's so rare. Only one in 350,000 births are affected. Um, So, Demetrius, before the break, the question that I left you with was, how is it feasible? Walk us through kind of the steps of the basic research all the way to getting a drug to market, which presumably takes many, many years, not to mention many, many thousands or millions of dollars. Um, And how does that all work in terms of a cost equation ultimately to patients when a disease is, as you called it, ultra rare? Sure. So um, just taking the first uh, bite of that question, you know, whenever you think about drug development, you have to be very um, aware of the potential indications. And this is actually something that when I started at Yale 10 years ago, and I have a long-term interest in drug development, I didn't fully appreciate. So um, as, we, as we talked about, I was, in, in, I was initially interested in an enzyme that um, was important for tumor metastasis. And um, through conversations with uh, oncologists at Yale, um, Mario Snoll, who's at Yale, who specializes in melanoma, who was very instrumental in, in shaping my thinking, I really came to understand that it was almost impossible to take an anti-metastatic drug through a clinical trial process because of the cost associated with completing that trial. It it was just too much money um, and, and companies just couldn't do it. And instead, the better indications to look for are very uh, lethal conditions that are very severe. Um, And these conditions don't necessarily need to be common conditions. They can be ultra rare. But if you can get a patient population that has them and that suffers from these conditions and treat them effectively with that drug, um, that becomes a uh, financially... um, doable problem for a, a drug company or a development company. And once once you get into the patients and you show its efficacy in this rare disease, you can then move into these more common diseases for indications that you would have never been able to develop that drug for in the first place. So for example, we were talking about this very rare disease of vascular calcification in infants and really some of the... Um, perhaps philosophical barriers to to spending a lot of time and money to develop a drug for these patients. They're very rare. Now, if you go on websites and there are blogs and websites of these children, it's heartbreaking to to see those children die slowly and it's 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 a tragedy for those patients. So we clearly want to intervene in those diseases for those people and we're committed to doing that. But um, it it has a, an additional benefit to the larger society as a whole uh, because millions of people suffer from a form of vascular calcification associated with renal failure. 
and we believe that these patients will also benefit from the identical therapy. So you can develop a strategy of drug development where you you go, go into a clinical trial for a limited number of patients, maybe only 10 or a, a dozen patients because it's a lethal disease, because this disease is very severe and, and, and death comes very quickly to these unfortunate patients, you can get through that clinical trial in a, in a, in a defined period of time, which is extremely important when you're trying to develop what's called proof of concept for that indication. So y y the expense required by investors, by the venture capital community, who are the is the community that will ultimately decide whether the drug gets developed or not, um, is is limited. The exposure is limited. They know that they can spend fifteen, twenty, thirty million dollars, get it through ten patients, and know if they have an answer at that time. So that's a risk that is doable to a, a venture community, and, and that's a risk worth taking, um, especially when you have on the back end this very large condition um, that, that, will, that may benefit. But to go into a renal failure population, the clinical trial may be years, and the, the cost associated with that clinical trial will be exponentially greater. So that would be a daunting, uh, initial indication for drug development for venture communities and 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 for companies. So, you know, you you have to keep in your head as a as a translational scientist where you really desire to to move therapy forward. You have to keep in your head both the scientific aspects of what you're developing, but also the business aspects of what you're developing. Because effectively if it's going to be developed, it has to be developed by a business. And these were aspects that I think um, clinicians such as yourself, Mario, um, and Dr. Kluger helped me understand what, when I was um, a young investigator here at Yale looking at melanoma. So I want to I want to tackle a few of the, the issues that you brought up. The first is, you know, the clearly, uh, you know, when you see these kids um, dying, anybody would want to intervene, anybody would want to develop a, a, a drug that could be very effective. A and certainly your preliminary data have shown that that is very effective. And so, so a couple of questions. The first is, given the rarity of the disease, how would you actually do the clinical trial, even to get 10 patients, when it's one in 350,000, wouldn't that take a national, international, collaborative venture um, to, to even get that kind of a clinical trial off the ground? Yes, I think the answer is yes. Um, but fortunately, a lot of these rare diseases have what we call advocacy networks that are associated with them. So th these are um, networks that are developed by um, usually the parents of children who have died of these diseases. And they're very committed individuals. And they, they develop what's called a registry where other affected um, parents sign up and they um, record the progress of the child. All of the medical records are taken, and and they're 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 accumulated so that one can um, access 
these registries and have a very clean idea of the natural history of the disease in humans. And this is very important when one moves into the FDA to present this data to them, to convince them to uh, um, allow for dosing and, and, and how you design the clinical trial. It can cut years off the clinical trial. So um, most of these rare diseases will have some form of advocacy network, and it's very important to plug into that. The other essential resource we have in this country is the National Institutes of Health, uh, where I trained, and there's a rare disease program there. And um, there are physicians who specialize in this disease and this family of diseases. And they have um, families and patients that they see um, that travel to Bethesda to be treated. And so um, one can tap into that network when one develops a, a, a therapy for a rare disease and use those resources, governmental resources that have been invested um, wisely by our government to um, to speed the clinical trial and to and to accumulate these patients. So even though it, it is a, an, a national and international um, uh, endeavor to ac accumulate the patients um, in diseases such as this that are lethal and, and, and very severe. It's not um, a daunting process. It, it's a doable process. Because presumably people travel to those small areas uh, that have the expertise in those rare diseases. Exactly. And and that's why there's such an interest right now in the drug development community on rare diseases uh, generally is that, um, you know, it's it's been um, demonstrated that even for these very rare diseases, one in 100,000, one in 200, 300,000, it's not uh, it's not insurmountable. It, it's not, it's a it's a very achievable um uh, if it's done correctly and wisely, it's very achievable to enroll that trial within a limited period of time. What happens to people who don't have the resources to fly to Bethesda? I believe that they, uh, the costs associated with all of that, uh, the, the, the transportation and the care is covered by the government. So if there is a clinical trial ongoing, you know, at the NIH, they pay for the transport, they pay for all the medical care. And they co they cover it fully. Yeah. So that that certainly does help. The next question, of course, is okay. So you do this clinical trial, and let's suppose that it's it's it works. Yeah. And we now have a drug that, in clinical trials, has been found to save these babies. When that drug goes to market, with the indication of the very specific indication of such a rare disease. Wouldn't the cost of the drug for that indication, given the fact that we now don't have the indication for the renal failure, uh, which could presumably help millions of patients, uh, wouldn't the cost of the drug be astronomical? Um, yeah, so the, the, the cost of the drug is really set by um, by the industry, and and it, the idea is to recover the cost of drug development. So for these very rare diseases where, n you know, not much drug is going to be shipped, um, the cost is is quite high. And there, this has been in the news a lot uh, recently with uh, some strategy of some pharmaceutical companies buying old drugs that are essentially off patent and then raising the cost of the drug by 
a hundredfold to to make it profitable. Um, this is not the situation when you're developing novel therapies that require a, a huge investment in time and money. Um, but typically, the cost of these drugs is quite high. However, once that drug gets into the system and is approved for use in humans, physicians can use it in what's called an off-label use and, and use it for other indications. Um, and that off-label use may lead to further, more common uses of the drug. And this will, in turn, drive the price of the drug down um, because as it's used more commonly, the price comes down in accordance with the, um, the, the, the amount of drug shipped, essentially. So, so you know, in, in, in this particular instance with Gassy, you may develop, you know, a drug that at first is extremely expensive but life-saving, and then the price of that drug may plummet over time if it has a uh, if it's found to have um, efficacy in common indications such as renal failure. Right. So, just for our listeners who might not know what GASI is, can you elaborate? Sure. GASI is called general arterialized calcification of infancy, and we just call it GASI um, to shorten that very long <laughs> diagnosis. And, and it is what it sounds like. It's a, it's a disease that develops in babies where they, they develop vascular calcifications that harden their arteries and they um, develop renal failure and heart failure and eventually expire, usually around six months of age. Dr. Demetrius Braddock is Associate Professor of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.